What's up, guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Not Gonna Lie podcast presented by Student Union Sports. We got a loaded show. Let's get into it. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the Not Gonna Lie podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Terry, and we have one of the best shows. Uh, I will say, maybe ever, could be. Uh, first up, we have an interview with Brandon Sneed, who's the author of the new and bestseller book, or soon to be at least, Sooner, The Story of Lincoln Riley. Fantastic interview. We talk about his inspiration behind the book. We talk about his newfound relationship with Mike Leach uh, and many other topics. And then after that, we get into a conversation with the legendary Bob Ryan. We hear uh, stories from the Dream Team, stories from the Celtics, uh, when he first started covering them, and we really get a look at how the journalism game has changed, uh, and Bob Ryan is one of the most entertaining people on the planet, so definitely a can't-miss episode for sure. Let's get into it. Now welcome on a very special guest. It is author of new book, just came out a couple days ago, Sooner, Brandon Sneed. Brandon, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, if you guys enjoy this interview, uh, and even if you don't enjoy this interview, go check out Sooner. Uh, you can find it <laughs> on his on his website, Brandon Sneed. Oh, what's that? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, BrandonSneed.com. Uh, that's, uh, that's the best uh, sales pitch I've heard for you yet. Even if you hate this interview, go buy the book. <laughs> Look, I, either way, I'm 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 driving traffic here. I'm interrupting you. This is a no, great no, step. we're <laughs> we're off to a hot start here. I think you've got the book in the background. If if you don't mind, just pulling it up and so people can get a look at it. It's a story of oh, yeah. Lincoln Riley. Um, right there. Yeah. yeah, so you can you can find it on Amazon. You can yeah. find it on his website, brandonsneed.com slash sooner. But first things first, um, the most interesting thing about this, it came out a couple days ago, um, and I was looking at it, and you're the number one book for sports journalism. Uh, but not only that, which is very impressive, your number twelve, your Kindle version of the book, is number twelve. So how does it feel to have two books in the top fifteen of of Amazon's sports journalism section? Yeah, no, that's amazing. I don't I don't know what it means numbers wise. I hope it means a lot, but I I don't know. I don't know what this says about my self esteem. But it kind of surprised me that early on. <laughs> um, no, it's awesome. Like I, I hope it means the words getting out and people are are liking it and picking it up because I mean yeah, it's just. I just love the story. So I think other people will too. So hopefully that means they're, they're finding it. Yeah. And so I was reading a little bit about the background on you kind of creating this story uh, and eventually writing the book. It led or it started with a, it started all the way back in East Carolina when you were a graduate yeah. student, if that's correct. Um, yeah, so right. what, what first drew you to Lincoln Riley, who was the offensive coordinator at East Carolina at the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was a grad student at ECU in 2011, 2012, when he was the offensive coordinator here. And I mean, I just, I didn't think anything about him, like writing wise at the time. I just thought that what he and Ruffin McNeil were doing with the East Carolina football offense was just, I mean, we were all just having a hell of a good time. I mean, I was going to the games with, you know, buddies and stuff like that. And I mean, they were just doing things nobody around here had seen, things that were not super common in the college football world at the time either. Um, and sorry, I feel like my face is totally like ghost washed out right now. <laughs> no, no, you're, so, you're you're all good. Such like a like no idea what's going on with the Zoom stuff lately. I gotta <laughs> catch up everybody else. Um, nah, but yeah, he just. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Greenville, and so ended up at grad school there. And I just never seen um, you know a stadium 
you know, is like rocking as it was when he was the offensive, co offensive coordinator here. And it just felt different. It felt just fun and alive. And uh, not that it was like terrible before, but it's just ECU football is a mid-level program. It, it's awesome for the town. Like, you know, the tailgating is, is as much of an event here as the games themselves. Like people love football here. And then like what he was able to do here was amazing. Um, we just had an amazing time. And then when I was writing for Bleacher Report in 2017, he, um, you know, he had just been named the head coach at OU. And I mean, I'd kind of kept tabs on him and, you know, I just followed him over the years, uh, just out of curiosity. And so I pitched a story on him to Bleacher Report and for their BR mag. And they sent me down there to Norman for about a week to interview him and family and, you know, players and Coach Stoops and everybody else. And uh, that story, I, I was happy with how that story came out. And I just had so much extra stuff that I just I even mentioned to him in passing you know that I think this could be you know actually a cool book and he just laughed it off and I knew it sounded a little nuts because he's so young I mean you don't write books about people that are 33 you just, you mm -hmm. know, but it's just it's, it was the whole of his story to getting to that point which we can talk more about if you want but it's just it's just this amazing inspirational story of a kid with a dream that goes sideways and then he ends up after a lot of different stuff you know landing where he is now which is just unreal yeah, and you also mentioned that it would be the great plot of a movie in addition yeah. to, to being a good book. Um, and at that time in 2017, did you ever, you know, besides the fact that you understood it would be a good book, did you ever think you would be the one writing it? I knew I wanted to. Um, I just didn't know the right timing. I mean, I did feel weird about it because he felt weird about it. Uh, so, you know, that's generally not the way I like to – I just never thought I'd be that kind of a writer. I mean, it's not to – you know, I don't think that's a bad thing in and of itself. It just wasn't my bag. It wasn't the type of thing I thought I was interested in. But um, around late 2018, I mean, I just know books. I mean, I just, I love books. Like, I love writing the magazine stories. And I mean, I love sports beat writing in general when it's, you know, you know, there's a lot of people that do really good work with it and all that. But like, I just, I love books. Like, I just, I love the way they can bring context to things. I love the way they can connect all these different dots and just, they can tell a really full uh, human story. And uh, so I was just talking to my agent in late 2018, and he encouraged me to take another look at this book um, or this book idea. And we worked up a proposal and sent it to some publishers, and one of them, uh, you know, made a great offer. And um, we just kind of went with it from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And talk to me a little bit more about, because you said uh, Lincoln Riley's feeling uncomfortable about a book being written about him. Uh, and how hard is it to really write a biography about somebody when they're not? Um, super comfortable being really invested in that process. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a challenge. Um, but I think it, uh, you know, once I got over the initial discomfort, I mean, I still feel even now the book's out, like I still feel kind of weird about it sometimes. But uh, I just, what what pushed me through it was the story. Like, I just, I loved the story. I loved, um, I mean, the way, it, you know, it inspired me and moved me and the way I thought it could inspire other people and move other people. It wasn't about like, making Lincoln look like Jesus, like, hey, here's this book about this guy, because he's all that in a bag of chips or whatever. No, it was just he, uh, it was just the story as much as anything, which is really about um, the people around him as much as it is about him and just the effect they had on him and the way he had to learn and grow from all from different mistakes he made and just kind of, it was just this really awesome coming of age tale of, like, like I said, just a kid with a dream that he wanted to be a quarterback, you know, growing up in a small town in West Texas, right, and gets hurt, um, 
and has to learn to, you know, make a new life for himself after he's told by Mike Leach at Texas Tech, yeah, you're never going to play football at this level. Uh, so it's, I mean, he went through some hard stuff. And I mean, it was just, I learned a lot from it. And it's just, I really wanted to see what it would look like as a finished book and was happy with it once it got there. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned Mike Leach. Uh, I'm a Washington State fan. I go to school in, in Washington. Oh, so I'm, a, okay, I'm in that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm around that area. Um, and I know he is, he's a unique guy. Uh, so talk to me a little bit. I'm assuming you've had, you had conversations with him in writing the book. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about your interactions with him. Do you have any cool Mike Leach stories? Yeah, no, I talked to him a lot. Um, he was, he was great. I mean, he, you know, once you get him on the phone, like he'll just still ramble about anything and everything. Uh, <laughs> everybody knows by now or can imagine. Um, and he was actually like, he was awesome at kind of encouraging me at different points. I mean, I'll just, I got to where I'll tell him like, you know, I'm just feel, I'll tell him something, feel weird about writing about him because he doesn't want to. It's frustrating. I feel like it's, you know, not frustrating with Lincoln. I mean, I understood his stance. I just, I wanted to do a good job. I thought it was a story that would mean something to people. Um, and so it was just, you know, a lot of just stuff to work through. And he was really encouraging about it, um, which was helpful. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, as far as like Mike Lee, I mean, he would call me at like three in the morning just says that's when he hey Bubba is now a good time for you I was like well I mean if this is when you can talk yes sir like we'll talk because we need college football coaches are all busy as hell so it's uh so you know that was always a trip three you know, I had a special ringtone uh just to so I knew it was him you know calling and even if I put my phone on do not disturb there for a little while I'd like make sure his calls would come through because uh, he just you know I just needed the help one of the stories and he was uh you never knew what he was gonna call you so mm -hmm. it was uh, that was you know that was a good time and he's just he's fun to talk to i mean it's uh his mind goes a million different directions at once and he'll talk about all of it and uh so it was a good time and yeah he helped me out a lot hmm. see now that's an interesting question in and of itself would you uh like just just in general if you're not writing a book would you get mike leach's phone number to know that you would get to talk to mike leach but it means that he could talk he could call you whenever he wants like, I think that's something you have to weigh. Is it, is it worthwhile to be called at three in the morning by Mike Leach? You get to talk to Mike Leach, but you also talk to him at three in the morning. Yeah, you know, what? I mean, that's a really funny way to put it. I never felt that way about it. I was just, uh, you know, kind of in desperation mode, trying to make sure I got everything I needed for the book. So it's like, anytime it rang, I was happy. You know, so I had no complaints. It was like, all right, this is what we can talk, we'll talk. Um, but no, that's a funny point. Uh, you know, thankfully it was never, uh, it hadn't been a problem yet. I'll say mm. that. <laughs> yeah, well, see, now if he continues to call you after the book's out, you got to be like, well, look, Mike, we got to set some boundaries here. We gotta... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did talk about like, because I live in East North Carolina, kind of near where, uh, you know, like Blackbeard's home and stuff like that. You know, he's a big pirate guy. So yeah. like, talked about he hadn't been out. There's this like big new display in a museum around here of like different stuff they found from Blackbeard's sunken ship or something like that. Talk about we need to go check that out or something. So, I don't know. I don't know. He might not even remember saying that, but it was something that just made me laugh. I'm like, yeah, like, we're going to go check out some pirate stuff together. It sounds good. Yeah, you. it sounds like you might have found a new best friend, to be honest with you. <laughs> I wouldn't get that far. But no, he helped me out. <laughs> he helped me out a lot with the book. I really appreciate uh, the help he gave me for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the interesting things I saw um, is you wanted to get a feel for what you said, quote, the West Texas vibe. So you okay. drove seven hours from, from Austin to Mulshu, which was Lincoln Riley's hometown, instead of flying yeah. into to Lubbock or Amarillo. So first off, what is, cause I, uh, what is the West Tex Texas vibe? Uh, and second off, how did those, what did you do to make those seven hours pass by? Cause that's 
quite a long trip. Yeah, no, I love this question. Um, yeah, so the West Texas vibe, it was just, uh, I mean, I write about it in the book a little bit. It's like, I mean, I, to me, maybe it sounds corny. It felt like driving in a painting or like driving in like a really like artistic movie or something like that. Like, it's just, uh, I mean, you just get on these roads and they go, I mean, you lose cell service for hours in some stretches. And I mean, it's just nothing but you and the road and desert, you know, and, and sometimes like little canyons look like miniature grand canyons and like it was breathtaking and beautiful. And like, I just, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about like the history of it, just driving around, uh, just what it must've been like to try to come in here and, make a living and survive here back before all the technology we have now. Um, things like that. Uh, you know, just for some reason, uh, the sky just felt huge there. I don't know if it's just cause it's miles and miles of like just flat land, but just like the sky just was enormous and like, which made the sunsets incredible. Um, to pass the time, uh, I listened, I mean, just listen to a lot of good music. I get kind of, kind of cheesy with it. I'd turn on like the explosions in the sky, like soundtrack to Friday Night Lights, the movie, which is like my, like when I was, especially in high school, like that was just, uh, I just loved that movie so much. Uh, as much for the music as anything now, like, you know, looking back on it. Uh, but yeah, so I just did that. I mean, it was, uh, it was just, that was profound in some ways, which sounds corny. And I feel like, no, I'm saying it out loud, but um, yeah, no, it was just, it was just a, it's a different world. I mean, somebody once, I feel like I remember somebody writing about like being out in that area, it feels like going on the far side of the moon or something like that. And mm. like, that's not totally inaccurate. Um, you know, but it was just, I loved it too. I mean, and, and like the drive, like you hear seven hours, that sounds really long, but it didn't feel that long um, for some reason. Um, and part of the reason I did that was you had to get the vibe, but also because like Lincoln made a, similar drive like when he was going through his emotional time when he was 19 having to decide if he's going to quit playing football uh, and become a coach and all that because Horseshoe Bay um, which is where he drove from Lubbock to Horseshoe Bay where his family has a little vacation spot on, a, on Lake Lyndon B. Johnson down there and so like I made that drive and found that spot just to kind of like get a feel for what he was going through and what it might have felt like as a 19 year old kid like making that drive and wrestling with your existential crisis. Um, so it was, uh, that was cool. Um, and I just, I have kind of an obsessive reporting process cause I want to make sure I'm getting stuff right, or at least as close to right as I can. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like a lot, but to me it just felt kind of necessary. And, uh, I just, I mean, it was fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, look, anytime you have another seven hour drive coming up, uh, I've got a great <laughs> podcast recommendation for you that you could check out that really just yeah. helps the time fly by. This will be, this will be episode 92. So that's like, it's close to like 80 hours of content for you. Like that's, man, let's do some quick math here. That's, uh, that's 11. You can make 11 seven hour trips in that span. 11 and a half. There we go. <laughs> I have to do it just to make sure I get all the episodes in. I'll just drive back and forth for a while. Of course. Yeah. I mean, on the off chance that, you know, there's ever a biography written about me, you know, <laughs> have to, you know, immerse yourself in it. <laughs> Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, so one of the things that I am especially interested about is how writers uh, combat writer's block. So I was listening to a podcast interview with Eric Roth, who's a very famous screenwriter. And he says that he puts, um, when he struggles with a scene, he puts the characters in a new climate. So like he'll make it snow or it'll be blazing hot or raining uh, just okay. to kind of shake it up and see how they react in that, in that state. Um, is there a trick that you have something like that to, to keep writer's block at bay? Uh, for me, I mean, it's always a little bit different for me, depending on what I'm working on. Um, 
honestly what works best for me is just like last minute deadline fear desperation <laughs> like if i'm ever struggling or something well at some point i'm gonna have to turn something in so i might as well work on it now um <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, in this book in particular, we had a really, really fast uh, turnaround time because they wanted it ready to go by this football season, which meant I basically had six months to write it, which mm. is really, really quick um, for this kind of book that requires a lot of research and then, you know, writing and then the editing and all that. And so, I mean, I, that that pushed me pretty hard in the beginning, too. It was like, you just got to get it done. You got to get something done. I mean, and um, and then when I was like wrestling with, you know, my different struggles with it. My editor said something. Uh, I mean, we had a couple really, or we had several really good conversations about it. Um, so two of the main things that he gave me that helped me were one, he said that the only thing truly fatal to a book is not finishing it. So just finish it and we'll, you know, we can always fix it after it's finished. And mm -hmm. that was true. And then he gave me, um, he, he recommended I read a book by John McPhee, the great, you know, sports writer about uh, Bill Bradley. and um, it's called a sense of where you are and it's just this really lean um thoughtful kind of really extended essay on what made bill bradley a great player um, when he was in college and um so i read that about 100 times just over and over again just something about the rhythm of the story and the words and that it was kind of what my editor you know wanted us to try to accomplish with this book and not that I'd ever feel comfortable comparing myself to, uh, you know, John McPhee, uh, but it's, uh, it helped me a lot just trying to get into that, just kind of aspiring towards that. I figure, well, it's not going to be, you know, it's not going to come off as good as John McPhee, but it's, uh, if I'm aspiring to that, then, you know, it might turn out pretty good. So we'll see. Um, so that helped me out a lot too. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. It's, it's, yeah. can't imagine what that's like, but it's, you know, you're just going and, yeah, I, I, the editor saying, you know, that, that not finishing it is the, the worst thing that could happen to it is, is so true. true. Whether it's a story or a novel or anything, I think it's like, I mean, you can't, like, the only true failure for a book is to not finish it. Mm. And, um, and yeah, and like talking about the writer's block, like I realized as I was explaining that to you, like, that's kind of, I think, what gets me through most things. is Like, I find a story or a book that, you know, reminds me of what I want to accomplish with what I'm writing in the moment. And so I'll read that a bunch and just try to get that kind of in my head and my heart and kind of write from there. Uh, sometimes it works better than others, but mm -hmm. that seems to be what works. Yeah. And so, lots, of lots of coffee. Oh yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. I believe it. <laughs> uh, so switching gears here a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about uh, BR mag. So it was announced that it was shutting down um, in, in the next couple months here and you used to write for them. That's where you really got the start with, Lincoln Riley putting a profile together on him. Um, yeah. I mean, what is it like now being in, you know, sports journalism where, especially with the coronavirus, there haven't been able to keep going because of sports and, and there are a lot of uh, groups that are, that are shutting down or downsizing. Like what, what is the, what is your outlook on the future of sports journalism at this point? Oh man, that's a good question. And I, oh geez. Um, I mean, honestly, the moment, it just feels bleak. I don't know if that's just my emotions or if that's the way it actually is, uh, but it is, it's discouraging. Um, and I don't, you know, I think that some places, I'll say this, like, I just, I know that doing the kind of journalism we were doing, um, and I hadn't written for BR Mag in about a year and a half. I was actually working on one thing for them and was starting to, was talking about starting to work on other stuff. And that just kind of caught all of us out of nowhere. Um, so it was, uh, it hurt, man, honestly, like it just hurt. Like I actually 
you know, we had a, you know, virtual happy hour uh, last night, everybody kind of catching up, reminiscing, just talking about what the place meant to us. And it was emotional. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it, it was, as we, we really swung to the fences there. There was a lot of really good, smart, talented writers and editors working there. And, um, you know, I think all I'll say is it's just, it's really hard, I think, to, it's hard to do that kind of work these days because it's expensive, both financially and time investment wise. Um, it's expensive, like, I mean, just man hours wise, as far as like getting good editors to work with good writers to get the best story. Um, Cause that takes time. It takes multiple trips. It takes many conversations with the people you're writing about and the people around them. And, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if it's, um, there's some problem that I haven't been able to put my finger on. I mean, some people, you know, they, they say it's, you know, whether it's the companies that are running these um, sports journalism outlets now, or it's the demand of the readers. I don't know. Like, I don't know what's happened over the last several years. I mean, people talk about the internet eating things and social media, just eating things. And I don't, I don't know what exactly has happened. I'm not an expert enough on it. Maybe I'm not smart enough to fully understand it, but it just, it seems like, the really, really good in-depth writing isn't valued anymore. And I don't understand why. Um, because for a while it was what everybody wanted to talk about online. It seemed like, uh, you know, a good story drops by a good writer. And I mean, everybody stops and reads it, talks about it for a minute. Um, you know, it's just, that seems like it's faded a lot. And I don't, I don't know, like, like I said, maybe other people smarter than me might understand why to me, it's just, it's sad and, um, it's emotional and, because there's a lot of really good work being done by a lot of smart people and I'm rambling and I'm not sure if I'm making a good point or not, but I just, I think it's hard to do that work and it's hard for companies to understand how to invest in it right now and all that. Cause it's just, it's, I feel like a lot of companies have just had a hard time knowing how to sustain that. And you know, it's just a hard, it's a hard business model right now. And I don't know all the answers. Um, I just, I think that there needs to be a place for it. I think that it's important and it's valuable. And I mean, it's just fun, great, you know, storytelling a lot of times. And I wish that there was more of it going on and it, it's just, it sucks to see it kind of fading away the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, that's definitely true. Uh, but I do want to end on a little bit of a lighter note here. Um, you know, because obviously it's, it's just a tough situation all around, but what's what's next for you so you, you the book is out where what's your next project what are you what are you thinking about tackling at this point yeah i'm still figuring that out um i mean i have a book proposal that is going out either this week or next week for something else um so hopefully that lands somewhere um you know I, i've been looking at maybe doing more freelance in this kind of feature story stuff but i'm also looking at maybe trying to start my own thing whether it's a newsletter a podcast or something like that and just grinding away at that for a year or two to see if I can build my own little audience. Uh, I've always thought that could be a really good thing. I just, it intimidates me a little bit. I like working with an editor. I like working with a team. You can bounce. I, I feel like it makes me better to work with a team. So the idea of going off on my own intimidates me, but that also is a sign to me that I should try it. You know, I'm kind of one of the biggest things I've learned is just if something scares you, you should probably go try it. So it scares me. So I'm probably going to go try it. And I just, probably make a fool of myself here or there and just, you know what, just kind of learn and just try to figure it out along the way. Well, uh, just know that if you do end up starting that podcast, 
I'll, I'm happy to come on anytime. You just let me know. Oh. You've got my, you got my contact. Hit me up. I'll, I'll right, be ready. Already. We're yeah. set. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time. No, absolutely. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Uh, anytime you want me to be back on, just, uh, just let me know, man. Appreciate you. Yeah, let's do it. Make sure to check out his book sooner. Like I said, like this interview or not sooner on Amazon, really wherever you get your books. Um, it's, it's going to be a good one. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it myself, but we'll, uh, we'll have to catch up soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate you. We now welcome on a very special guest, a guy who I've spent a lot of my time watching growing up as a kid in, in the sports world. It's uh, sports writer, Bob Ryan. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of the, it's always a cool moment, um, you know, in podcasting when I get to have these interviews with guys that I've, you know, have been a part of shaping my love for sports uh, and kind of getting me down this path. So it's, it's very, very exciting to uh, be able to, to talk That's with you. Very nice bit. to say that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first things first, I want to start off with um, what's been in the news quite a bit recently. Um, obviously the, uh, a couple of days ago on Wednesday, the Milwaukee Bucks decided not to play um, their game and essentially boycott, which led to numerous other um, leagues boycotting as well as the rest of the NBA. Um, this is something that, I mean, I don't even think we could have realistically imagined a year ago, you know, this, this sort of thing at this level. Um, what does this mean for athlete empowerment? I mean, obviously it's, it's huge for, for social justice and these guys are really taking a stand, but what does this mean for, for the athletes in a sense of, you know, they really now have the power? They certainly do because if they don't play, there's no games. And, and uh, now this is a choice they have to make because the ramifications, we're not sure how it's all going to play out in the long run. You know, number one, will they accomplish what they want to accomplish? Uh, we don't know we, uh, how that's going to work out. But they made it clear that they want to try to get something done in a way that previous generations have never even attempted. Okay. Uh, how the owners are going to react to all this. Uh, we're talking about M-O-N-E-Y on both sides and, and, and um, who can absorb what and who's willing to absorb what. These are all open questions right now. But what we do know is that we've entered a new chapter in, a, in American sports history, that uh, uh, the toothpaste of this type is out of the tube, that athlete empowerment is it's here to stay. And particularly, it's, it, it, it's, it's certainly uh, not surprising that the, uh, league, the lead dog in this was the NBA, because the NBA is the league uh, so heavily populated by, by African-American uh, player people of color, whether they're African-American, Canadian, uh, African-Canadian, uh, or European, uh, or Cameroonian, you know, there's a lot of people that weren't, that aren't white Caucasians who comprise the NBA. And um, so they had the, they have numbers on their side. And, and the NBA has always been, in the realm that we're talking about, the most progressive league. Uh, the NBA, uh, I wrote a column, in, uh, tooting my own horn, all right, in 2010, that did get into best sports stories for only the second time in my career. And it had to do with the fact that the NBA was the most uh, egalitarian entity in American society that there was, including entertainment, there was no other entity. And where at that point in time, we were 20 years or more into the black coaches being fired and being replaced by black coaches, including in many cases, anonymous people you never heard of, you know, mm. uh, assistant coaches that you didn't know about, uh, for example. Uh, 
I'm saying, and then we had black general manager winning a championship as far as 1971 with Wayne Embry. All right, the NBA has been in the forefront of all this, and and it was and the NBA players have by and large included an awful lot of very uh, uh, outspoken and 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 uh, and you know and, and forceful people uh, going back to the days of Oscar Robertson and Bill Russell. Oscar Robertson's name is on important fact of legislation in the National Basketball Association. Bill Russell speaks for itself. I don't, mm -hmm. If I have to tell anybody who Bill Russell is, off the court as well as on, maybe they're in the wrong podcast, okay? Bill Russell, <laughs> and his contributions go back to the 50s. All right, so it's the NBA. But the, it's going to be interesting. What was really interesting, here's the way I was reacting to it. I'm sitting home in my favorite chair. I've got on NBA TV. It's 10 minutes to 4 Eastern, and I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a game at 4 o'clock. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm ready for a game. And of course, they come on the air and we're at a box. <laughs> well, we, you know, we all know what happened, okay? Um, so that was my frame of reference. I was in on it, you know, in the sense from the, from the ground floor. Uh, the, but I'm rooting, once I realized, you know, once we knew what, happening, what was happening, that the, the Bucks and, and the Magic weren't going to play. Uh, and you knew there were rumblings in other, now in baseball. And I'm thinking, if the Bucks aren't going to play 100 miles from Kenosha, are the Brewers going to play? And I'm praying that they don't. And they didn't. And that, that was, that ripped the, the whole, you know, bandaid off everything. I mean, now, I mean, and now every, all, I think for that moment, everything, all the dominoes started to fall. How many cliches can I use? Well, you can count them up before the show's over. So, okay. You know what I'm saying? So I was rooting for this because I want this to take root. I want this to, 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 to uh, materialize and, and, and boy has it. And then, mm -hmm. you know, dragging and kind of kicking and screaming was the NHL, uh, the, uh, and, and FL, uh, half ass as usual, you know, some teams, yes, uh, the owners haven't been heard from, you know, um, Goodell, you know, in the aftermath of that long time apology, long overdue apology, proving nothing, solving nothing to Kaepernick, you know, we're waiting for him. So naturally they're the caboose. Uh, even if, when the NHL gets ahead of you when it's a racial matter, boy, you got a problem, you know, and that's, that's the NFL. So anyway, we're in the new uncharted waters. You know, my, my daughter said to me this morning, uh, uh, who's playing tonight? I said, well, assuming, <laughs> assuming that we do have games uh, right now, we're talking about playing. Hey, you don't know what's going to happen between now and, and, they, and, and 4, 4 p.m. Eastern today. Again, mm -hmm. you don't know, but I'm assuming that, we'll, I, that there will be games. Yeah. And, and this podcast, so we're recording this on Friday. So, uh, you know, who knows? And we're posting on Sunday. Friday, so who knows? Friday, or late Friday morning, Eastern time. This yeah. people know. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and so yeah, just so just so we can get a get a good frame of reference there. Um, yeah, no, it's we're in a a very unique time that you know we couldn't have seen coming even even just a couple months ago at this point. No. Like you you think previous to that, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's it's really awesome to see that the athletes are are taking charge and and they're basically. Well, saying, you know, it's interesting. The NBA had a taste of a potential boycott. The one the one crisis they had was in 1964 here in Boston when uh, at the the All Star game the. Uh, the players gathered together and, and were discussing seriously boycotting the game in order to uh, get the process going to get a proper union, to get, to get a union recognized in a, in a proper sense. And uh, Tommy Heinsohn was the leader, ringleader, and his owner, Walter, Heel, Walter Brown, called him, are you ready? A heel. <laughs> that, was a, that was a big slander thing in, in 1964. They did play, and they did get their wish. But that it was mm -hmm. but this, you have to. I know people are saying, "Yeah, yeah." Hey, in 1964, the idea of that All Star Game on national television was a big deal in the NBA. 
And mm. if they weren't going to play that game, it was going to be a tremendously big, bad, a negative blow to the NBA. They had some leverage and they, and they were able to exercise it. But that's, but that's the closest thing. And then the word boycott got tossed, started to get tossed around in colleges, remember, over the last couple of years. And, and uh, whether it's uh, bowl games or whatever, but there's been, flo- you know, that board boycott was floating around. But it wasn't until earlier this week when the first person I saw attach his name to the boycott was Fred Van Vliet. That's the first one I remember, mm-hmm. that the word boycott came out of somebody's lips. And then we then were reading about the Celtics and Raptors discussing a boycott of their opening game, which was slated for Thursday. And, um, and then we got to where we are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was, it was interesting to see because, uh, you know, we were reading that stuff, reading those reports that Fred Van Vliet was talking about, the Celtics and Raptors were talking about it. And then all of a sudden, the Bucks didn't take the court. And right, it was Bucks just... And- Right. We were, that was, well, who's prepared for that? Nobody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and here we are. I mean, things have moved awful quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, suddenly there's, you know, not only one baseball game, but several go, don't go. And then the NHL's not playing. And, I mean, it's, it's completely chaotic uh, in, a, in a sense, but um, it, we'll see what gets done though. You know, I mean, the good intentions. All right. Terrific. But uh, you know, they, they get what they need. I mean, what do they need? They need, they they need different, different, improved, better, responsible, uh, policing. That's what they want. And, and, and now, sure, I know the issues, that's the core issue. We know what it is. We know what the tipping points were. Uh, George Floyd and, 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 Mr. and Burke, Jacob Burke, Blake, excuse me, but they were the final tipping points. But obviously, we're hearing from all kinds of African Americans in, in power to explain things that have happened in their life that you can multiply how many countless times over for people that we don't know about. And who among us has any kind of African-American friend or acquaintance that doesn't have a story? And, and the one thing we're learning, uh, you know, more and more, well, is the, the, the talk. Everybody now, if you're a male Caucasian, if you're a male, if you're a Caucasian American, and you, by this moment in time, if I say to you, I you ever have to give the talk to your kid and you don't know what I'm talking about, then you are hopelessly, pathetically ignorant, sad excuse for a human being Mm -hmm. yeah and uh so so switching gears here a little bit because obviously this is a conversation that's going to continue um for a a while the the next couple months at the very minimum um i want to get to get to know you a little bit more get to know your story as a sports writer um i've got some things here i wrote down some really important people are saying some really cool stuff about you tony kornheiser called you the quintessential american sports writer and bill simmons called you the best basketball writer ever I mean, how does it feel to have, you know, guys that, that are very well respected in the industry say such amazing things about you? Well, tremendously flattering, obviously. And that, that the quintessential thing is a riot, you know, because that's pure Tony. Um, you know, and you have to ask him exactly what he meant. I've never asked him directly. You know, I've just worn the mantle very proudly. I remember uh, not long after he first said that, I was covering um, – a, a golf tournament, a, a major, I forget which one, doesn't matter. And I remember being, you know, I just don't know, but I remember being walking inside the ropes as usual. And I heard somebody go, Hey, quintessential, you know, and that's a, uh, and um, hey, way back, you know, but it, yeah, it's stuck and it's nice. It's extremely flattering. And as far as Bill Simmons is concerned, he grew up around here uh, reading Boston Globe uh, and, and following the Celtics. I was the primary beat writer for 13 and a half years from a period of time that ranged from 1969 to 1988. And I was fortunate enough to cover five uh, uh, championship teams in that time directly as a, you know, and, uh, and a sixth one being an 08 and as a columnist. And so um, I was associated with, 
and I'm proud of my basketball writing. And I'll stack up the, the, the game stories, you know, the, uh, on deadline, you know, 45 minutes, an hour at the most, uh, with stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end. That, that uh, I'll, I'll stack them up with anybody. I'll be very modest about it. Uh, bring them on. If you're sick of, I, I think I was as good as anybody ever did that, and I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And you mentioned Bill Simmons. Uh, as I said, he was talking about you. I mean, he reminds me a lot of, of you, not only in his love for Boston sports, but especially in his style and, and his delivery. Um, what is your relationship like with Bill Simmons? Well, we haven't spoken in a What's funny, funny, the last time we actually spoke was a podcast of his at a point when I didn't even know what a podcast was, and that's the gospel truth. We're talking about January of 2012, maybe February. It's either January or February 2012, and, and I, I'm a guest of his on his podcast. And in, during that podcast, I kind of innocently said I was thinking about hanging it up uh, that summer after the and, – and, and, and that I was going to be 66, and it worked out fine to, you know – social security wise, you know, blah, 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 you know, it's a good time to retire. I was ready mentally, uh, that I had done everything I wanted to do. And I didn't like the trend of the business. So it was all making some sense. Well, I hadn't, problem is I hadn't told my boss this. So about a day or two later, uh, my boss, Joe Sullivan is winders down in my cubicle and says, did you tell Bill Simmons you're retiring and you didn't tell me? And I, Ooh, uh, and from that point on, the cat was out of the bag. And, and from that point, on, I was officially in the, uh, you know, in the round and third and heading for home. And, and Joe was the best kind of manager for me to get there safely that I could have asked for. And the Globe treated me wonderfully. And everything fell into place because uh, I was going to cover the Olympics and uh, dream team. I mean, no, no, I don't, excuse me, the, the USA team. This one dream team. We can talk about that if you want. Only one. And, and, um, so my last official act as, uh, as a full-time employee at the Globe, for whom I worked over 44 years, was to hit the send button on the gold medal game uh, in London. Mm. So I've, since then, I've been retired from full-time, but I still, still, I'm out there active in a couple of podcasts, still writing for the Globe when, when they get back to normal. And, uh, uh, you know, so I still have, and I've had, of course, in ESPN, I'm not done. I'm on, I'm on hold, but they tell yeah. me I'm not done. But uh, so I'll be back. <laughs> When, when, whenever they get back to normal, whenever they get back to studio, you know, for around the horn, but they're mm -hmm. still doing it remotely and, and I'm, and I'm not part of it. Yeah. So, okay. You piqued my interest there. You said dream team. And then you said, we can talk about it if we want. I kind of want to talk about it now. Oh, like, oh, I, oh. I, I want to, I, I, I don't even oh. know. I'm not sure. Look, I want you to drive this part. I want you to just say what you, what you want to say, what the people would want to hear, because right. I'm okay. just interested to sit back right. and, and soak the it The most in. important thing is this, that people, someday all come to understand what it was all about because there's still a phenomenal myth that that uh and people don't know what it was all about they think it was all about where we were sore losers after losing in Seoul in 1988 and we were determined to regain america's supremacy and we were and we drove this and we we no 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 the dream team came about because of boris stankovich the Secretary General, President, or whatever he's called, of the FIBA, the International Basketball Ruling Body, of whom USA Basketball was a, was a, and the NBA, we all became a member afterward. He wanted to raise the bar for the world to show them where they need to be to get to the level of the American pros. And the only way to do that was to get in their face by bringing over the American pros and showing them where they got to go. It was Boris Stankovic who drove it. When, they, when there was a vote taken of the FIBA member schools, uh, schools uh, countries, 
to introduce the U.S. proofs, we voted against it. The American vote was no. So we came in, all right, and the idea was, okay, if you, if you want us, here we come. We'll get, we'll get a team together. And, and uh, David Stern appointed Dave Gavitt is basically the GM of the team, you know, and they, they sent the feelers out to get the uh, feeling uh, um, who, who, wanted, who was willing to play and wanted to play and, you know, who wanted to add a gold medal to their resume was, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And of course, everybody that mattered, that really, really mattered, including the Holy Trinity at the time, you know, Magic Michael Larry. You got Michael Magic Larry and, and on board and Patrick Ewing was in his prime and Robinson was in his prime, et cetera. And, and uh, anyway, so they get the team together and the way they did it was 11 NBA guys and the one, one kid from college that, and it had to be Leitner because he was the most decorated collegian of his era. He had played for the USA in the under 17s and the 19s and the, and he was the most decorated guy uh, with, with, with NCAA, you know, the rings and, and, and glass winning baskets. Shaq, of course, was a, you know, a figure, but he didn't have the resume in college. He never won. They never went anywhere mm -hmm. with him. And so it was Leitner. And so Leitner was the caboose, you know, with the 11 guys. And he was the, he was the victory cigar, you know, for the team. And uh, that's the way it worked. So that's why they came. That's why they were formed for people. And we, we, we didn't even want to do it. And I was privileged. And I, 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 at that point, I was off the beat. I'm a columnist. And, and I, I raised my hand to my boss then, Don Squar, uh, you know, begging to get me, you know, I want to cover that team. And, and he gave me the honor of doing it. And uh, uh, it was so much fun. I was there from the first bounce of the ball in La Jolla when they assembled against the 18, eight-man collegiate team that was put up as a practice squad to the last, you know, horn in, in Barcelona when they beat Croatia for the medal. And it was a great, it was a great experience, a great experience. And by the way, everybody wants to get it all down. You got to go get Jack McCallum's book, Dream Team. Go get it, Amazon it, get it and read it. And then you'll get the real lowdown. It's it's it it that's that's the definitive explanation of the dream team, Jack McCallum. I like. I'll, I'll definitely be be sure to check that out. Okay. So, are there any are there any of like favorite stories or favorite memories from covering the team yes. during that time? Yes. What it was all about for the international set and before the first game against Cuba, the Cubans asked to have a team a picture taken. All right. Right. Before the game, they wanted to have it. You know, the, this is a and then they go out and we beat them by sixty. Literally, you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that set a trend and everybody was doing with the picture thing from that point. But my favorite moment, they're playing Argentina. Argentina has a six foot five inch guard named Marco Milanesio. Good player. If you were in America, uh, say he were in the OVC or the, or the Missouri Valley Conference, or he'd be first team all conference, maybe even the player of the year. He'd get drafted here in the second, third round, you know, he right. was a good player. You know, he finds himself, on a switch, guarding magic in a post, okay? He signals to the bench, photographio, photographio. <laughs> yes, he wants them to get his picture taken while he's being guard, he's guarding, he's being guarding magic. All right, does, does that tell you all you need oh to know? Oh my God, yeah, no, that. Photographio. <laughs> so, and I came up and, I, and, and I'm, you know, a couple of phrases I'm proud of, you know, and one's been stolen and I, I, I need to get it back, you know, but, but it, was, it was misappropriated, you know what I'm saying? But 
I said the theme of the Olympics, of, of the whole experience, that was in a tournament in the Americas to qualify. We had to qualify. You know, we did. We had to yeah. qualify. Uh, and we're doing another was beat me, whip me, take my picture. That's, my, that's what I said was the theme of the, of the, of the Olympics. <laughs> I like that. That's good. That's, that's very funny. Uh, okay, so this is, I mean, you know, looking back on, on your whole, whole career, you started at the Globe as an intern. You're a history major. Spot opened up. You started writing about sports. Did you even have a, a sliver of an imagination that you would be doing it for your whole career and that you would be at this point in your life uh, covering sports for, for your whole adult lifetime? I, as a student at Boston College, as a, a writer for the school paper, as the play-by-play -play broadcaster for the basketball team for four years, which is the most fun doing anything I ever had, frankly, uh, uh, I had my eye on the Boston Globe. Now, there were three papers in Boston, each of whom actually had a morning and an evening. So in a sense, there were six when I came here. And uh, I identified immediately the Globe was the one that, that you would, you know, the best of the three. Mm. And I had my eye on it. But okay, my lucky entree was not just in the, working for the sports uh, the paper, the Heights. I got myself involved in sports information. Mm. And I tell people to this day, that's, that's what you want to get. You 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 got to get your, yourself into sports information, and uh, I wasn't the official aide, but I was a I was part I was an auxiliary aide, and so they I was I had uh, not they knew who I was in sports, and so when the time came for a uh, in a senior senior year, and the Globe uh, was was uh, looking for you know uh, had the intern thing going on, uh, this is an amazing story about life, and you got to be ready for what comes because you don't know what's going to happen. The original invitation for that interview at the Globe was with Reed Oslin, who was the sports information aide, the official one, who also happened to be my roommate. And he turned it down. And the mm. reason he turned it down was he, he, he wasn't going to have, he didn't want to be a career and have a career in journalism. As a matter of fact, what he wound up doing was becoming the sports information director and then became a, uh, a member of the uh, admissions department at BC. He spent his whole adult working life at BC, but not as a, not a journalist. Well, so they said, well, we got this other guy. I was the other guy and, and I was interviewed and I, I got the job. And on my first day, June 10th, 1968, I, I met uh, a guy named Peter Gammons, who was a sports information, uh, who was a, a, a intern from University of North Carolina. And we kind of hit it off. A, we were both preppies and B, uh, he was at Groton and I was from Lawrenceville. And uh, we, we, we had, of course, him going to Carolina, man, I had to talk about basketball right away. Mm. And then I found out that his real love was baseball. And of course, that still was my first love always, even was baseball. And uh, baseball very close, but baseball, if I had to pick one. And uh, so that's how I got started as an intern. And uh, I never worked for another paper. Now, you could, you could talk to the next 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 columnists or writers in American journalism over the age of anything, 40, 50s. And when you get another one who only worked at one paper, let me know. Okay. That, that's my, uh, it, it's not the way it's done ordinarily. You know, you got the small paper, the next size, you, you get, no, I was so lucky, incredibly lucky mm. to, to stumble into the globe and then, you know, have them be willing to keep me around. And, and, you know, with one little foray, now there was a, you may not know this because people now, time has elapsed since a long time ago, but in 1982, I did depart the globe officially uh, for 19 months to work with uh, local television. Channel 5, ABC affiliate. And the reason I did was uh, Ray Fitzgerald was the columnist at the Globe, a great, great columnist and a wonderful person. He passed away prematurely in summer of 82. And I was 
I, I was passed over for the column uh, and, and I was vulnerable. I was mipped, I was wounded, I was feeling sorry for myself. And I got a concurrent offer to go to Channel 5 from a good friend who talked me into it, frankly, and I took it. Now, here's what the good break was too, that two months after I got into it, uh, the sports editor who was then named Vince Doria came to me and said, you think you could write two columns a week for us on the side? And I said, well, two's a job, but I think I could do one, and I did. So for the last 17 months of those 19 I worked in television, I was writing a column for the Globe so I can you know, look you in the eye and say my continuity was you know, 44 years. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we can talk, the TV thing is a whole other matter. It's an interesting little chapter in my life, uh, but, uh, uh, but I still was writing. And, and mm -hmm. then when I came back to, in, in the, uh, 84, I'll never forget this, obviously. I came back in 84. Uh, my last official act was uh, do the pregame show, the Boston Marathon. And mm -hmm. I was done. When that 12 noon came, I was done. And I walked into the Globe the next morning, picked up the, the big computer that we used in those days, and went off the cover, which turned out to be, which may still be, the greatest five-game series in the history of the NBA, the 1984 series between the Knicks and the Pistons in which Bernard King averaged 40 points a game with two dislocated ring fingers that he taped together like this. And he averaged 40 points a game. Isaiah had one of the great phenomenal runs. and one other. It was incredible. Chuck Daly versus Yubi Brown, two. I mean, it, it, both old friends of mine, which was really great. And uh, that was my baptism coming back into the writing. And I never looked back. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So you had, you kind of coined um, a style of writing that was unique to yourself where you, when you're writing game recaps, you put equal parts opinion and oh, yeah. analysis. Uh, was it ever, was there ever any challenges that you found in that, you know, kind of maybe leaning too far on one side yes. than the other? When I was very young, you know, my, right in the beginning, I, uh, I think I, I crossed the line a few, a little bit, typically with regard to referees. And mm. uh, we had wise old heads on the desk. Uh, one guy in particular, he wasn't, I shouldn't say old, but uh, a wise head named Art Keefe. And, and he, he was he kind of mentored a little bit. Hi, Bobby, you know, be careful now, you know. And, and that was the first year. And, you know, the thing is, my, my great good fortune and Peter's great good fortune was we go to work at the Boston Globe at a particular point in time. The editor of the paper was named Tom Winship. He's one of the great editors of the 20th century American journalism. And Tom Winship loved writers and writing. Not every editor does. Uh, you know, they, they like to gather the news and they're not, they're not that crazy about the writing and, and, they, and they, or they, they think that they know how to write better than the writers or, or they, and the desk. We did not, you could hear, I guarantee you, you could bring in a thousand guys into my business and, and they will give you sorry tales about the mangled copy and, mm. the, and, the, and the, you know, the, just the angst of picking up the paper the next morning and finding out, hey, I didn't write that, you know, the way, I mean, I didn't write it that way. We never had that problem at the Globe. Uh, they trusted us and they gave us our head and they, he, he let us go. We were encouraged to, to go off and, and be ourselves. And we both were highly opinionated and we were cocky and we thought we knew what we were doing and, and him in baseball particularly and me in bas basketball particularly. And, 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 they, and they let us do it. And if we had gone to any number of other papers, we would have been shackled. We would have had the straitjacket put on. We would have been, you know, the, our, our careers never would have taken off. And I'm so grateful uh, that, that I was, I had no control that, that somebody else could have been the editor of the Globe, right? Yeah. But Tom Winship was, and, and the sports editor, uh, Ernie Roberts, uh, uh, was, was a writer's friend as well, you know? And so that was a great break. You don't always get breaks like that in this business. Mm, yeah. So one of the things that's been very interesting is we've seen this, this transition um, 
from, from, you know, sports media to being this long form, well thought out, you know, even opinion pieces to now a lot of this, you know, clickbait, short yeah. little bits. Uh, so this is a two part question. Uh, are you, how do you feel about the current state and maybe the future state of sports journalism? And the second part of that question is, are you pretty happy that you were in the time period that you were being able to write at a time when sports journalism really came on the rise? I'll answer the second one first. Okay. I am so grateful I did it when I did it as well as where I did it. Okay. That's part B. But uh, when I did it, absolutely. Um, I mourn the passing of an art form. Those game stories that I just described, that I'm so proud of, that I wrote on deadline, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, that had some literature, had some humor, had some flair, had some insight, had some, you know, uh, and, but in a package that was neatly tied together, if done well, if done right, if you hit it, if you're feeling good and you got it done right, they're gone. People aren't looking for them. Mm. Uh, it's all bits and pieces. It's all, we've abandoned them. And, uh, you know, now it's all, you, you, you put a, story, a little lead in and then observations, you know, it's easier now. It's easier. It's, uh, this is no problem. The, the right games, you're not writing a game story. You don't have to worry about continuity. You don't have to worry about transitions. You don't have to be literate. I'm not saying that guys are illiterate, but they don't have to do it and think about that in the way that we, we, we did it. And, and so that's gone. Columns, they're saying. That's what talking about people covering a game and, and putting a game a, a story or a game yeah. reflection, observation. Columns haven't changed. A great columnist today uh, is doing essentially uh, the same thing that Red Smith did, that, that uh, you know, uh, John Ringel, Ringel Lardner did, for Christ's sake. I mean, really, and, you know, with, with modern references. That, that hasn't changed. But mm -hmm. that, what, the, the, the coverage, that's the word. Thank you, Bob. You'll get it right. The coverage is... is different now and i'm not saying it's not insightful you know but the what they're asked to do is not the same thing and, and i'm saying it's easier i'm sorry guys but it's uh, it's a piece of cake compared to what we were trying to do every night that's all and 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 you look good for you because you've got other problems we never had mm -hmm. you got a tweet you i don't even know sometimes i look i'm saying are you watching the game are you you know are they tweeting they're, no really you know you're watching the game no um they got a tweet they got to worry about and they got to worry about you know the the all the social media world that we're living in you're you're a full part of it and we'd have anything like that you know and until my very end and i was and as it was coming in i was thinking about time for you to get out <laughs> and uh and i did and uh so it's different uh yes very different mm. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's, there are, there are a lot of different challenges. I will say, especially, I think one of the toughest ones is that everybody has access to it now. So you're competing against yep. everybody, you know, cause it's, oh, yeah. it was, it was long gone the day, you know, like if you were going to a game, you could watch it and cover it. But now I can sit down and I can watch a game halfway across the country uh, and then form my own opinions about it and write about it. But yeah, yeah that's true. Well, yeah, that's always, yeah. And of course, TV used to be, we, we were cognizant of television. Do you know that when uh, Monday Night Football was instituted in 1970, uh, the Boston Globe was not the only paper, but we were right away, the editors, Ernie Roberts said, uh, this, you know, we knew the, the ratings were going to be enormous. This is a new phenomenon of, uh, uh, of primetime football. Uh, and therefore, there's going to be a lot of attention focused on that game. And so he dispatched Lee Montville, who's a brilliant columnist, uh, out. He basically, his, his beat for the football season was to go to the site of the Monday night game, write mm. a column for us on the Monday night game, because yeah. he knew people had watched that game and he was going to put a columnist slant to it. 
because people had he knew they had watched it because of the rating. So we we recognized the merit, you know, that the, the you had to pay homage to television, you know, in, in that sense. So uh, we were we were very much in the forefront of that. But yeah, but the idea of of the people, you know, the one thing people tell you why you don't want to get, need a game store anymore. Everybody's seen the game, you know. Uh, well, maybe so, but you can enhance their appreciation of the game. You know, mm. I mean, I don't have examples here, but I'd love to be able to read some, you know, and, and the people say, well, really, you did that? I said, yeah, I did that. And I did that in 45 minutes or an hour, you know, in deadline. <laughs> uh, you train yourself to think. You train yourself how to take notes so that you can access information as quickly as possible. And, and you have to develop a, an, an efficient note-taking system, uh, whether it's uh, uh, in a baseball, yeah, you got a scorebook, but there's other notes you want to put. Basketball, though, there's no such, you know, you're, you're doing what we call the running sheet. And you got to figure out how much information you can get down, you know, before missing the next basket. You know what I'm saying? And and uh, it, it, that takes a lot of concentration. A yeah. lot. I can tell you this seriously. When the night was over, I was mentally exhausted. A lot of nights. You know, mm -hmm. really. I mean, yeah. when it was all over, when I hit that uh, that final, when I when I when I sent it in, oh no, I was or handed out the copy to the you know in the old days before we you know we did a Western Union guy, which is what it was until the computers world came in. Um, you know, you worked hard mentally, and uh, I'm not saying I'm pounding because the old days you're pounding the typewriter too. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of it, it, it took a lot of concentration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you mentioned this a little bit before, but I want to go back to it. You eventually made the transition to TV, which is where you know I recognize you from growing up a lot. Um, how did how did that come about, and how do you feel that that enhanced your career as a sports journalist? First foray I had on the local broadcast was a to be a fill-in on a radio talk show in the summer of 1971. I was 25 years old. And um, Johnny Most, the great legendary Celtic broadcaster, uh, had a summer Monday, Monday through Friday talk show, and he went on vacation. And I filled in for $100 and free meal each night. It was at Bachelor's Three in Boston. And, and I got $100 for the week and, and a free meal every night. And I thought that was great. All right, TV. Uh, local television asked for some uh, insight live shots in, this, in the mid-70s. So we got to fast forward now in the, up, you know, a few years. And I did a couple of those, you know, and, and they're looking for, you know, the local slant from, you know, from the expert. I did, you know, I don't know, I got, no, I had friends at ESPN. I, I remember doing some ESPN live shots for, I uh, remember I, they had me on, on Dr. J's final game, which was in Milwaukee. In 1978, I mean, excuse me, 88, and uh, 88, and um, I remember standing in front of the, the arena, you know, doing a, a live shot hit for uh, ESPN. What happened was for me the big breakthrough was, and I so I was known locally a little bit, but that, and that was my first national exposure. When uh, Joe Valerio, who had been a friend of mine, but not close buddy buddy, but we were good acquaintances, he had been a sports writer in New York in this in the 70s. He got into television producing. He produced in both for CBS and ABC. He bought a show called The Sports Reporters after it had been founded by Terry O'Neill in 19, and in this fall of 89, he took it over. And he invited me to be a part of the, the new panel he was putting together. And I was on that show for the next 28 years. Mm. Until our last show was May 7th, 2017. And, and uh, uh, from that familiarity, uh, I was a charter member of Around the Horn. In, in 2002, that show's going to celebrate its 18th anniversary in November mm. 4th, believe it or not. And PTI, which has just celebrated its uh, 18th in, in January, it was 19th, excuse me. And uh, 
because of that, when PTI came into being in the summer they needed for the first summer was vacation time, uh, the first two people that they tapped to fill in were Dan Lebetard and me. Mm. And we, did, we worked together for the first time in the summer of 02, 01, excuse me. Uh, and that, so that's how I got into TV with ESPN. Yeah, and, and I, I was reading before that you say that you always consider yourself to be, uh, be a writer first. Um, so, so with this, uh, juggling TV, uh, how do you, do you, do you see a difference in your style and the way you deliver, uh, sports reporting from writing to TV or is it, is it, does it overlap a little bit? Well, uh, the, no problem. See the, to me, the TV thing is you're either you're naturally comfortable in front of the camera or even a microphone, uh, in, in a studio, uh, in a, you know, we're, you know, wearing a t-shirt uh, or you're not, you know, and, and I am. And, and either you're glib and you can summon your thoughts succinctly, quickly, and cogently, or you can't. And I, frankly, people obviously have come to the conclusion that I could. And so uh, that's it. You know, some great writers are not, would never made it in, you know, in TV. They just, that there wasn't in them. In them. I was fortunate that I had the, the, the natural capacity to, to, do, to do the TV. Uh, and, you know, and that, it was great because, believe me, it was a, Welcome income was welcome exposure. I'll tell you how I, I first realized the power, you know, the really, this is a great insight. In, in 2001, I was covering the ALCS between the Twins and the Blue Jays. And I remember walking from uh, in a corridor between field and clubhouse and a player stopped me. And he introduced himself to me, it was Gene Larkin. And, and he said, I see you on TV. I said, oh, well, that's very nice. Thank you. And that was my man bites dog moment, right? And, and, and Gene Larkin winds up driving in the winning run in the famous Jack Morris one nothing game, by the way, you know, later mm -hmm. on down the road. So, but that's when I first got, oh, my God, that's a, that, was a, that was a complete shock the first time a player ever does himself to me instead of – but TV and so forth. So throughout the 2000s, because of my exposure, you know, you could go into a clubhouse now as a, or, or a locker room as a, as a globe writer with a little bit of an entree that you didn't have ordinarily, you know, I had enough mm -hmm. of a lot. So that, that's the way it, it worked. But in terms of style, you know, you know yeah, I, just, I had my TV person. The one different style though, I have to tell you, is the difference between being interviewed in the standard radio talk show, you know, as a guest, you know, which I, you know how many, I don't know how many times, you know, a million, uh, yeah. or, uh, and being interviewed on local NPR. There you, you have to put on your big boy vocabulary. Or at least I, at least I think you do. Yeah. So you would find a little pomposity attached to my NPR appearances as opposed to my more standard appearances. Mm, yeah. So, so you're telling me you're not like this on your NPR interviews? I'm, I'm, not, I'm a little more statesmanlike. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you mentioned you made uh, your your money covering the Celtics early on, um, and you became somewhat of a friend and a confidant to a lot of the players. Uh, much to maybe the annoyance of some of the coaches or referees or other players, that sort of thing. One coach. One, just one coach. Okay. Tommy, Tommy yeah, and yeah. I had, you know, but we, we, it, that, that was then. Mm -hmm. Trust me, we're, we're, we've been friends for 42 years, but we, we had, a, we had our moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the thing is I gotta, I gotta know, is there potentially an untold story or one of those type of deals uh, that you have from your time covering the Celtics that you want to share with us? Maybe something that, that hasn't gotten a lot of exposure, but was, you know, like kind of a big yeah, deal at I'm, the time. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, 
dodging the, the cop in the plea here. I'm not sure about that, you know, uh, necessarily. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I have some funny, some favorite stories. And, you know, my favorite of all time, of course, how I started my book, Scribe, is Dave Cowan's retiring in my hotel room in, in, in 1980, literally. And, and me writing, help authoring his retirement statement. And, and uh, you know, and, and then his famous punchline is he's leaving my room uh, to, to go back up to his room. Do you mind if I call Red first? <laughs> no, no, Dave, that's okay. You know, so, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, no, I'm untold stories. Uh, I, I, I can't, I don't really have anything that I can think of. I'm sure I'll probably think about it in two hours, but no, I don't. Look, I, I feel like you're dodging a little bit, but it's okay. Where are you? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I know. I, I'm really, I didn't do anything on Twitter. I'm just, you know, well, all right. Yeah, all right. I, I don't know if Here it's untold. I, I know okay. I've told them. I told it on radio, so you know, but this is a good one, you know. You mentioned Heinzen, and we mentioned the fact that we were having our problems and, and uh, after a while. And Paul Westfall and I hit it off from the moment he entered the team as a rookie from USC in 1972. And we were friendly. And we we're one, but it was well known that, you know, what was going on with he and Tom, with Tommy and me, because Tommy was making it known, you know. He was telling the team on certain occasions not to talk to me. And they all laughed. They, I, I would get like the minutes of the meeting delivered to me about 30 minutes later, you know, because mm -hmm. uh, they all know it was nonsense. Uh, we were in Landover, Maryland, going to play the Bullets. And the, your hotel was out there not far from the arena. And we were going to go to the, Paul and I were going to go to the uh, movies together. And he said, we got to take separate cabs in case Tommy sees, I, I can't have him see, him see me with you. I said, I totally understand. And, and that was... You know, that, that's true. It's a true story. Paul, so I went to the movies in separate cabs. So Tommy wouldn't, you know, see him with me. And, uh, but Paul, who, by the way, uh, I want everyone to understand, uh, know if they don't know, uh, if, if you're into, uh, into the uh, sending out your thoughts and prayers, uh, has been stricken by brain cancer mm. and is not doing well. And uh, it's, a, you know, it's a really serious situation. And uh, obviously, I, I can't, I wish him the best. He's one of the most interesting gracious, uh, and, and, and sincerely nice, great people that I recovered from Paul Westfall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thoughts and prayers out to, to him as he, he goes through that. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, your life kind of splayed out, uh, as, uh, as, as in your writings from what you've been able to cover, um, over these past few, uh, decades at this point. But so here's, here's one of the things that I, I'm most interested about because you have been in and around covering the Celtics for, uh, you know, the, the last few decades here. How does this Celtics team today, transitioning to today's sports now a little bit, how does the Celtics team today stack up against maybe the 08 championship team, maybe the team of the 80s and, mm -hmm. and so on? How do, how do they look? Well, obviously, they got to win something before we can put them on the, on the level with those other teams. Uh, and, at 80, and let me say this about that, that big three, second big three group that won the championship in 08. They, they're but for two injuries, unfortunate injuries. Now, now, not that they're the only team that can't say this, okay? But they're mm -hmm. one of a group of teams that can say they're going three-peat. If A, Kendrick Perkins, uh, 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 A, Garnett doesn't get hurt in 09, and B, without any question, any question, per Kendrick Perkins doesn't get hurt in 10 in that fifth game. Anyway, all right, they could have won three. They were good enough to win three. Um, this team is on its on the, the, they're knocking on the door. They're, they're not there. They've got wonderfully entertaining components 
that great forward combo. That, that these two kids of Tatum and Brown, Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum, uh, they could go down if they played or if they do it, if they maximize their potential. You, you might make a case it's the greatest forward duo in the history of this mm. forward duo. You know, you had, you, had, you had back in the, you know, I can go back and forth, but let's just start with Havlicek and Silas and then, you know, uh, Mikhail and fill in the blank because, um, you know, after Larry and, Bert and Kim Mikhail, obviously, you know, but they mm -hmm. could be right there, the next one up. Uh, and, of course, Garnett and, and, and Pierce. They have a chance to match those guys. They're, they're that potentially good. It's a likable team. They're back liking each other and they're comfortably playing when they replaced a brilliant talent but a strange human being with an excellent talent and an a exemplary human being for a team of sports in Kemba Walker. He's a dream teammate for a group of essentially young players. And um, they're, they're very rootable. Two years ago, they were very rootable. Last year, they're all messed up and, and underachieved. And now they're back right now. We'll see. Uh, don't uh, you know, this injury to Hayward is so disturbing, but once again, you know, this is every look at the injuries all around the league, yeah, you know, mm. you know all around the league. So they can't feel too far sorry for themselves. Uh, when you look at what they're in context of other teams, but boy, they're a fun team, and, I, and I'm very, I'm very high on, on Brad Stevens. What they lack, I'll tell you what they lack, and they've lacked it for three years, and 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 it, it they need that instant offense guy off the bench, they would, they don't have it. They don't yeah. have an instant offense. When, they, when they're whole and they got smart coming off the bench, he's not that. He gives you another dimension that you can't get anywhere else. He's, he's the most dangerous force when has people looking around. Where is he? Where's he going to be? What's he going to do next? You know, mm -hmm. yeah. he's, he's charmingly reckless out there, you know, and, 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 and volatile. But he's not a great offensive player. He has his moments. He gets hot. And, but that's not what you ask him to do. He's not, he's not, they need a facsimile of Lou Williams. Now, there's only one mm -hmm. right now in our time. It's only one Lou Williams, but you know they need somebody to come off the bench and score to make them whole. And that, and and they, you know, when they got rid of Aaron Baines, they got rid of the body, big body presence. They don't have that either, and they survived Embiid. Uh, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see what they do here. It's Mark Gasol, a different being. Huh? You know, we'll see. But but so they're not perfect. They they need they need that. Danny has got to be out there finding them. That if he finds him that guy off the bench but they would be really something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think he's hoping that some of those rookies will kind of fall into that role, but it's, it's a lot to ask. Last I, year, you know, they drafted Carson Edwards and he went off and got eight threes in five minutes, five minutes in an ex exhibition game. And that, and I thought that at the time, this is not good. This is going to whet everyone's appetite, mine included. And it's exactly what happened. He hasn't had any impact mm -hmm. in, in two years. I, you know, but, that's what I'm talking about, though. <laughs> but the, the, for one wonderful shining moment in an, in an exhibition game, he gave him that, but not since. Yeah, that being said, though, I I love watching Grant Williams out on oh, the floor, especially oh, when they go he's, small. He's great to have around. He's wonderful. Yeah. I wish he were 6'8". <laughs> then it would really be talking. But, you know, that, that's really, imagine if he were 6'8 instead of 6'6". Mm, yeah. And that would make it all the difference. You know, he didn't, oh, boy. But he's still an asset. And, and he's improved. He started off 0 for 10 on threes, I think, and he's starting to make them now. And, and he may – hey, he's – I just hope he continues to want to be a basketball player. We've yeah. got two guys in this team, on this team, that I say there's not the slightest doubt in my mind, their post-basketball careers won't have anything to do with basketball. 
and they're going to be people you're going to hear from. One is Jalen Brown. Yeah. And the other is Grant Williams. Now, Grant Williams wound up becoming, uh, you know, playing an instrument of your choice to the club of your choice someday on top of anything else. But he's a very, very aware, cerebral young man, as is Jalen Brown. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one final question, current sports, and then I'm going to do one question after that, and then we'll let you go. It's been great talking to you. Tom Brady's gone yeah. down, down in Florida. So in your best estimation, who, who has been responsible for this Patriots dynasty more? Uh, is it Belichick or is it Brady? You know, uh, uh, before I answer a definitive answer, the, two, the, 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 the yeah but in support of uh, it's Belichick is they went 11-5 and five the year Brady was hurt with Castle. And the only reason, that it's the only year they didn't make the playoffs in the last, what, 18, whatever, on a technicality. They lost on a tiebreaker. They were 11-5. Yeah. Okay. The other answer is uh, that Belichick in Cleveland was not exactly, you know, a, a rousing success. And his first year without Brady, with, with uh, Bledsoe, they, were, they weren't very good. Uh, although, and, uh, you know, not that I'm playing it at all on Bledsoe, because I'm, I'm, I'm a member of that fan club, by the way. So, um, I... If I had to go 51-49 or 50-and-a-half, 49-and-a-half, I'd go Brady-Belichick. But, but believe me, I, uh, um, only because I don't want to be a, you know, I, I want to give you an answer. So a very shaky vote for Brady. <laughs> hey, we'll take it. We'll take it. Uh, okay, one final question here. And it's a little bit of a selfish one, but it's okay because, you know, fortunately, <laughs> since you're on my podcast, I can, I can ask those sorts of questions. Um, yes. For, for a, a young college junior aspiring to – make it work in the sports journalism world. Uh, what advice would you give to that person? All right. This is an advice that I'm a one. I'm no good at telling you about in job procurement. Okay. Uh, number one in broadcasting. I, I, I'm not, I, have, I have no expertise in, in negotiating that world to get a job in, in journalism. The path I took was my path is unique. It's not going to work. You're not going to go intern and then stay 44 years at a paper. It ain't going to happen. I did mm. it. I was lucky. I didn't do it. I, it, it happened to me. All right. I, I have, okay. One piece of advice for anyone, and this goes for broadcast uh, aspirants too, because you're doing words, you're doing in thoughts, you're doing, you're, you're, you're wanting to summon ideas, words, concepts instantly without even thinking about it. They're just there. They tumble out. They fall into place, right? How do you get that? How do you get a vocabulary? How do you get uh, an education? Read. If you're read, 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 and not just sports, you should be working on a book always and then working in your day if you're not going to read the paper and, and print but go go on online read, read and read. read 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 that's how you develop your mind that's 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 your that that's your, your food for your brain and it's that simple and and i know when people are going to broadcast they say well I thought the hey your your words are your business mm-hmm. and you and you you just you've got the vocabulary you've got the thought process you've got the reference points you've got you don't know when you're ever going to use it. You might use it once in your career, but that key moment, you're going to have that. And where'd you get it? You read it somewhere. You don't even realize it. Piece of advice. And I don't care what I'm, I'm talking. I give this advice to grammar school kids, high school kids, collegians, all read. Hmm. I like it. Well, Bob, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. And look, it's an open invitation. Anytime you want to come on the podcast, you've got my contact information. I do. Uh, that was you, fun. You, I enjoyed it. We, we've got an open spot for you whenever. Uh, but yeah, we appreciate it and hope to talk to you soon. Okay, take care. All right.